Shalom. <laughs> it's great to be here with you. My name is David Brickner, and uh, it's my privilege to be sharing this weekend uh, the message to kick off our series, Heroes of Faith. And uh, I serve as Executive Director of Juice for Jesus. Our international headquarters is located right here in San Francisco. But perhaps more importantly, uh, I've been part of the Cornerstone community for 14 plus years. And uh, during those years, it's been a wonderful experience for me to develop a, a close personal friendship with our pastor, Pastor Terry. And uh, we meet together at least on a weekly basis. We pray together, encourage one another, hold each other accountable. And uh, it's a friendship that I treasure. And perhaps that's why Pastor Terry asked me to kind of give this kickoff because he knows that uh, biography is one of my, certainly the most favorite uh, forms of literature, an opportunity to see how other people live and, and deal with the stresses and strains of life. And uh, that's certainly uh, what we're gonna be doing over these next number of weeks, starting and going through the whole summer, uh, looking at some of the heroes of faith, the men and women of the Older Testament in particular, the challenges, the successes and failures, the struggles and strains, and hopefully we'll be inspired and encouraged in our own life through living with these people. Lord God, we just pray now as we enter into this new series, Lord, that you'd prepare all of us, all of our hearts, for what you want to teach us, how you want to change us, Lord, and how you want to live through us in a new and challenging way, and we just commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. I always look forward to the summertime because those great movies are lining up to come out. You know, all the superhero movies, uh, the new Avengers movie, Batman versus Superman. And, uh, you know, this year we've got Ant-Man coming. So I really, I really look forward to that. And, uh, but, you know, I think it really demonstrates the fact that we live in a culture that really does crave heroes, and not just the superhuman kind. We, we tend to elevate people in various fields of endeavor, sports stars, you know, the bum, Bumgarner, right? You know, we're, we're really excited about our sports heroes or, or the Hollywood movie actors and uh, even sometimes political leaders. You know, we look at their lives and we see the access to fame, to fortune, to power, and we admire that. And... Uh, and we spend money pursuing uh, interests concerning those things. And, and yet, even the greatest of our heroes, under the glare of you know, the TV lights or under scrutiny from the media, show flaws, sometimes really flaws that absolutely discourage and disappoint us. And that's just because people are broken. But that doesn't mean that there aren't heroes that there can be heroes. God's heroes are often different, though, from the heroes that our culture tends to elevate and put up on a pedestal. They're often not the popular people. They're often kind of sometimes misfits. And uh, like the Foo Fighters song, they're ordinary. <laughs> but sometimes these ordinary people can do extraordinary things for God because he chooses to use them. Sometimes that comes at great cost to those who would be God's heroes. And, and the, the hero that I've chosen to us to focus on today is actually not an Older Testament hero. He's kind of a bridge 
character between the New and the Older Testaments, John the Baptist. Now, last week we were looking at John, John the Apostle, and this is not that John, it's John the Baptist. And Baptist is not his religious denomination. It is uh, an aspect of his ministry in Israel that made him stand out, made him what we would call unconventional as a prophet and as a hero. And so let's take a look at our handout to see uh, what is actually a summary of John's ministry given in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And we can see right in the beginning there about this unsung hero, I've called him, how he was unconventional in the way that, that Luke sets it up historically. Verse 1, it says, It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor of, over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. And so you can see a, an interesting contrast. Luke introduces us to seven people who were actually the famous people, the powerful people, the big name people. I mean, if we were to put this in our modern parlance, we could say it was the, the year of Barack Obama as president and Jerry Brown as governor of California and Dianne Feinstein as senator and Ed Lee as mayor. And the word of God came to some yokel up at Mount Shasta. <laughs> There's a, a kind of a contrast you can see there. This guy, John, who is he? You know, these other guys we know because they were famous. I mean, they didn't have glossy magazines or television shows, but their images were plastered everywhere. In statuary, all over the city, names of buildings, even on the coinage, that they were pressed in on the coins. So everybody knew who these guys were, but who's John? I mean, to say John was different is really an understatement. He was weird. <laughs> he wore, the Bible tells us he wore camel hair clothing. You know, this is, uh, you know, kind of scratchy stuff. It's not what you see on the runways, you know, the couture in the, in the best dress shops of, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, he, he ate locusts and wild honey. Kosher, yes, but you don't want them on your dining room table, I don't think, right? And it says the word of God came to this guy. John, where? In the wilderness. Unconventional person and an unconventional place. This wilderness, we know where it was. It was the Judean wilderness. It is like no other place on the planet. It is the lowest place below sea level. Uh, a number of years ago, I took a group of us from Cornerstone and we spent 10 days in Israel. We spent a half a day <laughs> in the Judean wilderness. There's lots to see and do, but you don't want to hang out there very long because it's really hot and it's, there's no shade. There's very little water to be found. It's just not the most pleasant place. And yet that's where he was. And that's where the word of God came, to this person in this place. And so you might imagine that the message is going to be an unconventional message as well, and it certainly is. Look at what is in your handout. 
Then John, verse 3, went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River. And by the way, the Jordan River is not what we think of like, you know, the Mississippi or something. When it gets down to the Dead Sea in that area, it's more like a muddy creek. It's, it's really uh, not the greatest river. <laughs> but uh, he's on both sides of the Jordan preaching that people should be baptized, that's dunked in the water, to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him, the valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level, the curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth and then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Well, so this baptism, this baptism of repentance, it's not, baptism is not something that was invented by John. It was known in the Jewish community for Jewish people as a rite of ritual purification. So for example, if you, you know, were burying somebody and you touched a dead body, you were ritually unclean and you went for a mikvah, it's called a baptism, and you were made clean. But that's not what John's talking about here at the Jordan River. You see, there was another baptism that was not for Jewish people, it was for non-Jews who had been involved in idolatry and false worship and paganism. And if they wanted to reject that, to repent, if you will, and become followers of the one true God, then they too had this baptism for repentance. So can you see what's happening here? John is coming to a Jewish audience and saying, guess what guys, you need to be baptized. I don't care if you're Jewish to the hilt, you need to convert. You need to repent. You need to get with the program. Now, this was not only an unconventional message. No doubt it was unpopular. And yet it was one that God had actually predicted would be the most important way to prepare the people of Israel for their coming Messiah. You see that the quote here from Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 40. So Isaiah actually predicted the ministry of John the Baptist. That's pretty cool. And the job that he had was to prepare the hearts and minds of the people for the Messiah, which is also pretty cool. But how did he do it? Well, with a pretty strong message, a pretty challenging message, a message that was not kind of this therapeutic uh, palliative, you know, this kind of a feel-good kind of a message. It was a message that kind of shook people up. You need to repent. Now that means, uh, it, the word means to kind of stop going in this direction and start going in the other direction. To change your direction, to change your thinking, to change your heart about what's going on. You need to repent, John is saying to the people, in order to prepare yourself for what God is about to do. And this is not like, hey, Peace is coming, isn't that great? We should all feel good about it. No, he says, you know what? We're, we're knocking down mountains and we're filling up valleys. We're gonna shake the world. The revolution's beginning. <laughs> the kingdom's coming, get ready. And uh, so that was the unconventional message that this guy brought. Now look at what happens, top of, of, of the second column. When the crowds came to John for baptism. Okay, so what's happening? This weird place with this weird guy giving this strange message is actually getting a response from crowds. People are leaving their comfortable homes 
in the hills of Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and they're coming out to this God-forsaken wilderness. They're interested. They're, they're, they're excited. They want to know what's going on. And, you know, if I was in that place, I would be saying, cool, you know? I'm getting successful here. I, I'm getting a crowd. This is great. I better figure out how to keep the crowd. <laughs> but you see, John was not that kind of a guy. He was not like me. He was uncompromising. He said, what? Verse 7, you brood of snakes. That's how to win friends and influence people, right? <laughs> Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Now, I may be flattered by a lot of people responding to what I want to see happen, but John wasn't flattered at all. He understood that some of these people were coming out to check him out, to see, like especially the leaders we find out in other places, they're trying to see... This guy's getting popular. We better find out if we need to put a stop to him. You know? And so he recognizes they're slithering out you know, to give him a hard time. And so he calls them out. You can't blend into the crowd just by showing up, thinking, think that you're a part of this movement. You're just a brood of snakes. You have to, if you're really coming out because you want to repent, you want to respond to this message, you have to show fruit. In other words, John is saying something that we need to hear too, and that is that God is not just interested in our belief, but our behavior. So if we truly are responding to God and his word, then there's going to be a change in our lives. It's not going to be surface. It's not going to be cosmetic. It's going to call us to evaluate seriously what we're doing. There's an ax out here. And it's called the judgment of a holy God. And boy, we get uncomfortable with that, right? You know, I was thinking about this because one of the slogans that's been most compelling uh, in some of the protest marches that have been going on over the past year is no justice, no peace, right? No justice, no peace. Everybody wants peace, but we realize you can't have peace if there's no justice. We want both. We demand both. We want justice, but you can't have justice without judgment, right? The human heart wants justice. We don't want, don't judge me, though, <laughs> you know? And there's a real good thing in the fact that we recognize the need for justice because it tells us, ultimately, we recognize that God is a holy God and that he has set standards and that there's judgment for those who cannot align themselves with those purposes of God. Peace, justice, judgment, they come together. And that's what John is saying to the crowds. Bring forth fruit. And he anticipates their response. Don't tell me that just because you're Jewish, you got a leg up on the rest of everybody. You don't. Everybody's even on the scales of justice your behavior matters. You can't skate through this one. We're talking about God here. John did not prepare the people 
for the coming of the Messiah by giving them warm fuzzies, but by denouncing their hypocrisy. His was a ministry that really called people to account, and it's something that I think that we need a little more of in our world today. And so people, this is amazing, people are responding. They, they say, look at this, the crowds, verse 10, the crowds ask, what should we do? Okay, if you're right, then, then what's the next step? And John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do, asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So it's, again, this idea of stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. If you know what's right, then do it. And that makes sense. And we all recognize that in and of ourselves, we're not really capable of doing this. But when God's spirit is convicting us of something that needs to change, God's spirit will also empower us with the ability to make the change. Not perfectly, never perfectly, but to begin to move in that right direction. So here is an amazing example of people who are saying, okay, we get it, there's something wrong, what do we do? John says, do the right thing. You know what it is. That's why you're here. That's why you want to be baptized, because you know there's something you're doing wrong and you need to do it right. And he goes with two examples of perhaps the most despised groups in the day. Tax collectors, the IRS. Yeah. What should we do? Stop cheating. (laughs) Stop taking more taxes than what you should. Be fair. And then even more uh, despised people were the soldiers. These were not Jewish soldiers, Roman soldiers, oppression. You know, these these were the worst. What should we, you mean God can even convict these guys? I guess, they were out there too. What should we do? Okay, well you need to stop using your position of power and advantage to oppress people and to take what doesn't belong to you. It makes sense. It's right there. Stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. I remember when I was uh, leading the Chicago branch of Juice for Jesus, I got a phone call late Sunday night from a couple who had just come back to Chicago from a class reunion at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Now they were both Jewish and the guy had gone to U of M and had met some people from InterVarsity and they shared with him about Jesus and he became a believer. But then after he graduated, he kind of left it off and moved to Chicago and was living his life, met this girl, nice Jewish girl, and they fell in love and they were living together and working in Chicago when it was time for this class reunion. So they go, he meets his old friends, and they tell her about the Lord, and she becomes a believer. He rededicates his life to the Lord, and then they jump in the car and drive back to Chicago. And as they're driving, they're beginning to think, hmm, you know what? (laughs) We got a little bit of a, a challenge in front of us. We need some help to figure this out. So they called me up. And I came, and here we, at 10 o'clock in the evening in my office, they're saying, so, you know, this is what's happened, and uh, we're living together. 
is that a problem? I said, well, do you think it's a problem? He said, they said, yeah. I said, well, can one, what, what, what should you do? One, what, one, of, one of us has to move out. I think that's right. Who do, you, who do you think one of you can move out? Yeah, the guy says, I have a friend. I can move in with him. When should I do it? Tonight. <laughs> really? Yeah, why not? You know? Is that what God's speaking to you about? Do it. And they did. And of course, the rest of the story is that they got married and the rest is history. But you know, when you know God is speaking to you, he'll give you the strength to do what you need to do, even if it's uncomfortable. And that's what John is basically saying, do the right thing. And people were responding. I mean, this is amazing. You know, we think that if you give a a direct, pointed message that people are going to walk away, and many times that happens, but there are people who are looking for the Lord, who are looking for truth, who are looking to see God work in their lives, and that's what John was seeing. Look at the top of the third column. (laughs) He was so uncompromising. Some of us would feel uncomfortable being uncompromising like that. But then, people are so excited, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be that one. He might be the Messiah. Oh, man, this guy is becoming more and more popular all the time. Now they think he's the Messiah. This is amazing. All of a sudden, you know, there's some real activity. If you put it in our modern context, obviously, all the political operatives are out there trying to figure out where they can dig up dirt on this guy, John, right? And all the reporters are trying to find out a little bit more about his bio. Can we, can we interview his mother? You know, who are his friends? Let's find out what makes this guy tick, you know? And then there are, are literary agents, you know, who are saying, let's get the biography written on this guy, you know? And movie uh, agents are trying to get, seal the deal for the next movie about John. And, uh, you know, locusts and wild honey are all of a sudden the most favorite appetizers in all the night spots in Jerusalem when there's a brand new gl- line of clothing, camel hair clothing that's becoming, you know? <laughs> John, this is great. Grab the spotlight. You got it, dude. This is your moment. But John's unselfish. Look at what he says. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John says, I am nobody's hero, but I have a hero, and his name is Jesus, and he's coming. You think that I'm something? I, I, I I don't even have the cred to be his slave. I can't even bend down and untie his shoes for him. He is so great. And that's the way he lived. And it was powerful, and it made all the difference in this man's life. There's another story in John 3 that kind of goes with this, where after Jesus actually launches his ministry, the crowds are now starting to follow Jesus. 
And John's disciples are getting a little upset about this. And they come to him and they say, hey man, don't you realize what's going on? You're losing your popularity. Everybody's going after Jesus. And John says, and that's as it should be. Because he must increase and I must decrease. Don't you love that? He must increase and I must decrease. And I think to myself, oh man, if I could only live that way. That could be my slogan. If my life could point people to Jesus instead of to myself, which is so natural for us to want the accolades, right? John doesn't do that. He's unselfish. He points people to Jesus. But that's, there's, a, there's a little coda, a little end note here in the story. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. I think that's kind of an interesting contrast. He announced warnings that are good news, you know? Um, kind of a contrast that we need to keep in mind. And then it says, John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas. Hey, John, it's another thing to, to shout at the crowds, but when you pick the leader of the whole, you know, it's like, He's, he, it's, he's shouting at, at Governor Brown, you know? He's making a nuisance of himself. He's, he's saying, criticizing Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for what? For marrying Herodias, Herod's brother's wife. A little unseemly, and so John can't keep quiet about it. There you go, John. Open up your big mouth and get yourself in trouble. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. So that's where we end this, the, this summary of John's ministry. He's in prison, locked up, and eventually we find out he gets his head chopped off. Wow, what an unsuccessful ending to our hero's story. In that perspective, it seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, if you look at John's life in comparison to other prophets, he never did a miracle. He never was accepted by the leadership. In fact, they said he, was, he had a demon. And this is the way he ends up. And, and there's even one more point. It's even more poignant in my view. Um, he's just, just a few disciples left while he's in prison. And, and he sends those guys to Jesus with a question. And the question is, are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we wait for somebody else? Wow. In other words, here he is in this prison, in anguish of soul, doubting the very purpose for his life. Did I blow it? Did I mess up by saying that you're the one? I may have gotten it wrong. I think I got it wrong. What are you doing? Nothing's going the way I expected it to. Look at me. And Jesus sends those disciples back to John with these words. You go and tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. Not exactly the most comforting words. But what Jesus is saying to John is, yeah, you didn't get it all right. Because I'm not burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire doesn't mean that your life was misspent. Because I'm not doing things in exactly the way that you had hoped 
doesn't mean that God's not still in charge and that your life is meaningless. And then the disciples go back with that message and Jesus speaks to the crowds and I ask them to put this up on the screen for us. From Luke 7, after John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or, or, well, he wasn't, right? Or, or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. That's the guy, the guy who's in prison. He's the guy that the Bible talks about. And then this little epilogue, uh, it's almost like a eulogy before his death. Jesus says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, None is greater than John, yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's got to be one of the most enigmatic statements in the scripture. What do you mean? There's no one greater, and yet in the kingdom, he's the least, and the least is greater than him. Well, it goes to show you what this upside the upside-down kingdom of God is all about because there's no question that John, of all the prophets, was the greatest because he was the one that God used to prepare the world for the coming of God's son, Jesus. That's great. But John ministered before the death and resurrection of Jesus, before the gospel was fully established through the work of Christ, before that kingdom had actually come, you see. And when the kingdom comes, as Jesus said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And John's greatness means nothing in the kingdom because we're all his servants. But you see, because of that, all of us can aspire to the same kind of greatness. Because it's the kind of greatness not based upon our qualifications, but upon his grace. It's a greatness that's based upon the fact that he must increase, and I must decrease. D.L. Moody put it this way, a great 20th century, early 20th century preacher. He said, one may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. So in the remaining minutes, I just want to put three things up on the board to help us consider what we've learned about this unsung hero, John, today. First of all, being out of step with our surrounding culture isn't always a bad thing. Look at John. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go out and get camel hair clothing. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that John had a certain aspect of his life that set him apart so that people would pay attention and allow his life to point people to the Lord. 
We don't need to reject our culture and go off into the wilderness to have that happening on our own lives. We need to be students of our culture. We need to evaluate our culture in the, in the eyes and the light of God's word and decide what are the things that are gonna distinguish my life in the midst of this culture and that will ultimately lead to Jesus, to people when they see me saying there's something, something different. We send teams of, of uh, college students who are believers in Jesus to the mountains of India every year because that's where the Israeli soldiers go when they get out of the army. They go there because the, the living is cheap, the food is cheap, and the drugs are cheap. And so our guys go and they live in the same place, they eat the same food, but they don't partake. And the automatic question is, why, why aren't you getting high like the rest of us? And the answer is, we're high on life. Well, tell me more about that. What is it that we do differently that raises the question, that gives us the opportunity to say, it's not about me, it's about him? John did that, and we all can do that in our own way. Let's live our life in a way that points people to Jesus. Now, I can identify somewhat with John's you know, preaching, because I also preach, but I'll tell you what, I identify with even more, and that is John in prison. Because the greatest is doubting. And I have struggled with doubt. Have you? Even the strongest of us will face times of doubt and despair when we just don't understand what's going on. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought was going to happen. This is not working out the way I wanted it to. What are you doing, God? And we may not be in a literal prison, but we're in a prison of despair, isolation, discouragement. And in the midst of that prison, that's where God shows up. That's where God's reality can break through. Often our very weakness makes God's greatness most visible. Rick Warren said it this way, if you want God to use you, you must be willing to walk with a limp the rest of your life because God uses weak people. All of us have had brokenness, unwelcomed, but nevertheless imposed on our lives. But we don't need to stay in the prison of our brokenness. We can walk out of prison, maybe with a limp, but knowing that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And that is greatness too. Our woundedness can be used of God to accomplish his will. And lastly, success in God's eyes may not always appear as successful to others, but in the end, isn't it what God thinks that matters most? I hate the fact that I'm so worried about what other people will think about me. I wish I didn't have that plague, but I do. And I gotta keep reminding myself that that doesn't matter. It's what God's opinion is that matters most for me. And so I struggle at that. Are we living for what's written on our resume or what might be said at our eulogy? I borrow this from a very recent book uh, from New York Times columnist David Brooks. It's called The Road to Character, I recommend it. David Brooks is Jewish, he's not a believer in Jesus, and yet he's written this amazing book, just came out a couple weeks ago. 
in which he says, you know, most of us spend our lives cultivating the virtues of a resume, you know? Polishing up what it is that makes us successful in job, in life, in career, and that's what we spend our time and energy on. He says, but what about the virtues of what's said in a eulogy? Those moral characters and qualities that speak of a life well-lived. How much effort are we putting into cultivating those virtues? What do people say about you and how you lived your life, your courage, your compassion, your love, your faithfulness? Those are the things that God is most interested in. Those are the things that God wants to work in our lives. And those are the things that ultimately will matter most when we are saying with word and deed, he must increase and I must decrease. May that be our life as well. In a moment, uh, the band's going to come back and sing this really great song, Lord, I'm ready now. The idea is that we, you know, we go through a lot of challenges. Maybe we're in prison right now, the prison of our own discouragement, or we've messed up in some way, but we can be ready for God to work. And he will, by his grace, not by our efforts. And it's a good prayer to pray as we conclude. But before we do, we're going to have our time of giving. And let me pray for that now. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great hero of the faith, John, who had such an unusual life, but so much that we could grab hold of. And may we do that now, Lord. We're ready now, Lord, for you to work a work of grace in our lives. We can't do it on our own. Help us to be willing to do the things that lead to your increase and our decrease. In Jesus' name.